The scripture reading for this afternoon is from the book of Obadiah. It's just one chapter. It's on page 813, if there is a pew Bible. If not, it's between Amos and Jonah. It's in the Minor Prophets. Later in our text in Malachi, we'll see that God destroys Edom, that is, the descendants of Esau, and we'll see why in the the verses that we'll read. It's because Edom has done despicable things to Israel on the day of the destruction of Jerusalem. We'll read verses 10 to 15. For violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. In the day that you stood on the other side, in the day that strangers carried captives, captive his forces, when foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, even you were as one of them. But you should not have gazed on the day of your brother the day of his captivity, nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. You should not have entered the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Indeed, you should not have gazed on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. You should not have stood at the crossroads to cut off those among them who escaped, nor should you have delivered up those among them who remained in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. Now, as our text, let's turn to Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 to burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom has said, We have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness, 
the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see and you shall say, The Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Dear brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, this is the first sermon of a series of sermons on the book of Malachi. Let me give you some background information on the book of Malachi. It is obviously the last prophecy given to in the Old Testament. and It was given to the remnant of Israel, the small group of people who were sent into exile in Babylon and were returned back, who came back from the Babylonian exile. And these people at this point of history were able to rebuild the temple, as later you will see that priests were offering polluted offering. The temple was rebuilt. But they had a lot of problems. And I think this African proverb captures what is going on. The proverb, proverb, African proverb goes like this. A child that is not embraced by the village will burn it down to feel its warmth. That shows that love is essential to our well-being. That's why people who are unloved will act out in unacceptable ways, perhaps even seeking negative attention. And that's what's happening with the remnant. But we just read that God loved them. Indeed, God loved them, but rather the problem is that they didn't believe it. So in their minds, in their perspective, God did not love them, and that's the reality. And that's why Israel, the remnant, is acting out, not treating God with respect. They are offering lame and sick animals to God, which is an insult. And they are marrying outside the covenant. And they are robbing God by not tithing. And God will not let his people act out like that. He wants to get to the bottom of all this, and he wants his people to know that he loves them. And through this text, God wants you to know that he loves you as well. And in our text, we'll see that he makes a case for his love for them, and that is what we'll be focusing on this sermon. The theme of this sermon is God makes a case for his love for the remnant. And we'll consider three points. First, the proclamation of his love. Second, the proof of his love. And third, the promise of his love. In verse 2, God proclaims his love towards Israel, saying, I have loved you. Well, that's a remarkable statement. The God's people at this point in history, deserve God's love. Have they done anything good? I've, I've laid out some bad things they did. If you want to check the headings of your Bible, you'll see the corrupt priests, treachery of infidelity, do not rob God, the people complain harshly. There are lots of bad things, and you'll also notice not only is there a lot of bad things, there's not a single good thing that they have done. 
Clearly, they do not deserve God's love. And what's worse is that they're acting like this when they're given a second chance, to say the least, multiple chances. They've been already sent to the exile, Babylonian exile, and they're brought back. And then they're still acting like this. Haven't they learned anything? Haven't they learned anything despite living in a foreign land, in a hostile land for 70 years for their own actions as their punishment? How could they be acting exactly the same way as they went into the exile, before they went into the exile? This is insulting to God. If God was like us, like human beings, he would come and say, how dare you, despising my name, Yet God first comes, as you read, and he says, I have loved you. Notice that he doesn't say, I loved you, as in I loved you, but now it's done, you've done this to yourself. No, he says, I have loved you, which means I loved you and I still love you. And that's a remarkable statement. But then see how the remnant reacts The remnant wasn't ready to accept this yet. That's why they say in response, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Why would they say that? The reason they're saying this is because they're a tiny remnant among superpowers. They were so insignificant compared to what they used to be. At this time, they're under the dominant Persian Empire, They didn't have power, the power even to have their own king. They only have a governor. They did build, rebuild the temple, but it was so lackluster that when the foundations were laid, people wept, especially those who remembered the temple of Solomon. They were small, insignificant, and weak, and they were constantly harassed by their neighbors. You might remember that from Ezra and Nehemiah as they were trying to build the temple and the walls. On top of that, they were poor as well. We read in Malachi 3 verse 9 that they were cursed. Their crops weren't doing well. So when they're this this weak and poor, it's understandable that they ask, how have you loved us? In what way have you loved us? And look at what God says in response. He says, Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. That's not, apparently, it's not clear, self-evident what he's trying to say. But he's bringing, notice that he's bringing up the name of Jacob. And he's saying, I have loved you. And Jacob I have loved. He's saying, in the way that I have loved Jacob, I love you. Then we should ask, how did he love Jacob? And the answer is, in an unconditional, sovereign way. You most likely know that verse 2, the end of verse 2 and the beginning of verse 3 is a famous verse. Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. It's the verse that's quoted in Romans 9. And there Paul uses this verse to show that God is sovereign in his love. 
in the way he loves. You know that Romans 9 is famous for the doctrine of election, and when we come to election, we know that it's not about us, it's not about what we do, it's all up to God's sovereign good pleasure. And so when Jacob asks, Israel asks, in what way have, I loved, have you loved us? God is saying, in this sovereign way. His love is not based on what they did or who they are. That's clear in the example of Esau and Jacob. You know that Jacob and Esau were twins. And even before they were born, God already chose Jacob, loved Jacob, and he says, the older shall serve the younger. And indeed, God favored and loved Jacob. Think of everything that God has done for Jacob, the nation of Israel and his descendants. Everything that is done in the Exodus, the great works, the miracles, ten plagues, the splitting of the Red Sea. Think of all the victories that God granted David. Think of the wealth and wisdom that God gave to Solomon. That's how he loved Jacob. Not because Jacob was righteous, but because God is sovereign. He has mercy on whom he has mercy. And here God is saying to the small remnant, you are still remnant. Yes, you are a remnant. You are still the remnant of Jacob. And I won't break my everlasting covenant with you. That's how I love you. Now that doesn't mean that all physical descendants of Jacob will be saved. But it means that they are immensely privileged. Not all physical descendants of Jacob's will be saved, but no one will be saved who does not align themselves with Jacob. Salvation comes through Jacob, namely Israel, or new Israel, and the church. It means whoever wants to receive God's love must become part of Jacob, the body of Christ. That's a privileged position Jacob had. Jacob is God's covenant people, and this small remnant is still God's covenant people. And that's why, although this people treats God horribly, he still says, I have loved you. This is a persistent, faithful love. We might wonder, why doesn't God just cut them loose and that's because he loves them too much. He knows that they are going to perish forever if he cuts them loose. That's exactly how covenant works. A covenant is an intimate, strong relationship that's between a husband and a wife, that's between a father and child. That's the comparison. You'll see, if I am a father, where is my honor? That's how God thinks of Israel, as a son. Would a father cut off his son from his life just because he is rebellious? Would a father be able to stop thinking about the rebellious son? No, quite the opposite. Actually, his thoughts and his mind, his heart goes out even more to a rebellious son. And that's what we're seeing in this text. God is a covenant God 
and Israel is his covenant people. And this is something we as God's covenant people need to be reminded, especially when our life is a mess, especially when our relationship with God is a mess. God still loves you with a strong covenantal love. No matter how badly you have sinned, if only you are willing to turn back, repent, and turn back to God, then he will love you again. In fact, in order to do that, he sent his son Jesus Christ to die for you on the cross. And we know that he did that while we were still enemies. That's how deep his love is. So believe what God reveals to you in his word. And if you still find it difficult to believe that God actually loves you, look at the proof of his love. And that brings us to the second point, the proof of his love. He says in verse 2, Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. You might wonder, how does this prove that God loves Jacob? What does hatred toward Esau and the destruction of Esau have to do with God loving Jacob? The key to understanding this passage is to know that Esau also, known as Edom, was was an enemy of Israel. You're well aware of the animosity that existed between the two brothers, Jacob and Esau. And there are also ongoing history of animosity between them in Numbers 20. It was Edom, the king of Edom, that blocked Israel from going through his, their country, so Israel had to make a detour. As enemies, they go back and forth, killing each other. And then, Edom was also involved with the destruction of Jerusalem. This is what Joel says in 3 verse 19, chapter 3 verse 19. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. In fact, we've read a detailed list of the appalling deeds of what they've done in Obadiah. They've gloated over Israel. They have rejoiced over it. He's spoken arrogantly in the time of trouble. This is what God says. You should not have plundered the land of Israel. You should not have gloated over the destruction. You should not have seized their wealth. And this I find especially despicable. You should not have stood at the crossroads, killing those who tried to escape. You should not have captured the survivors and handed them over in their terrible time of trouble. It was brutal and merciless. Imagine losing a loved one that way. A child, a parent, a father, trying to escape from the destruction of Jerusalem and the Edomites come and capture him and hand him over to Babylon. Would you be ever able to forgive them? And what kind of hatred would you harbor against the Edomites to lose a child like that? 
to lose a parent or a brother like that. And Edom, Esau was a brother of Jacob. They were brothers. Brothers are supposed to, are supposed to protect each other. And this is what Edom did to Israel. Capturing survivors and handing them over to Babylon. That's why God laid waste his mountain and destroyed his heritage. Because God cares for his people. Elsewhere, God says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, He who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Zechariah 2, verse 8. Now, do you see why hatred towards Esau and destruction of Esau is an act of love? You can see the protective maternal instinct, like mama bear coming and destroying the enemies. And this is important for you to know as well because we know that God says in his word that he loves us, but we don't know it, actually. So often we don't believe, we don't experience that God loves us. We as God's people sometimes feel, I might say often feel like the remnant, small and outnumbered by the world, outpowered by the world. Poor, often unbelievers seem to have a better life. They are richer, they have better relationships, better family, better health, better off in many ways. And then you might think, I thought I was a precious child of God. And you might ask God, in your times of difficulty, in what way have you loved me? That's why you have to take a close look at the proof of, God, proof of God's love. He hates your enemies, and he destroys them. Think of your enemies. Think of those who have deeply hurt you. And I should rather ask, who really are your enemies? Yes, there are those who persecute the church, but is your enemy those people? Or is it the evil that resides in them and Satan who controls them? This is what the Apostle Paul wrote. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Those are ultimately our enemies, our arch enemies. That's why Christ says, pray for your enemies, bless them even when they persecute you, but because ultimately those people are not your enemies. Your ultimate enemy is Satan, it's sin, it's death. Is your hatred placed properly on them? Think about that. Without Satan and sin, there wouldn't have been a fall. That means without Satan and sin, there will be no suffering in this world You will have no human enemies. There will be no persecution, no struggling, no anxiety, no illness, no death. And God says, I hate your enemies and I destroy them. So praise God for defeating them. What God has done to Edom is a picture of what God does to Satan's sin and death. On the cross, Christ defeated them. He delivered such a fatal blow to these enemies that they were completely disarmed. They have no lethal weapon left to harm us. 
Satan has been cast off from heaven and he can no longer accuse us. Death has lost its string and now it's just a portal into eternal life. Those are the proof of God's love to you. The result of it is certainly amazing, but think of also the cost of God defeating our enemies. What did it cost God, his dear son? Humiliation, the hellish agony of his precious beloved son. The death of Christ on the cursed cross. When God said that he would defeat your enemy in this verse, in Genesis 3, he knew what it will cost him. He knew that the seed of the woman, his heel, would be bruised to crush the head of the serpent. Isn't that enough proof that God loves you? And finally, there's more. And we come to the final point, the promise of his love. We read in verse 4, even though Edom has said, or even if Edom says, we have been impoverished, but we will return and rebuild the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Though God destroyed Edom, they were not completely wiped off. They were not annihilated. There were survivors. And you could see how this could be a concern for God's people. What if they start multiplying? What if they start rebuilding again? And that's a real concern for the remnant because that's exactly what they did. They came from exile and they rebuilt the temple. They rebuilt the walls. They rebuilt their lives. And they might wonder, what if Edom does the same? Will they be a threat to us again? But God says, and he promises that they will not be a threat again. Because even if they do rebuild, God will personally, personally throw them down, tear them down. So for them, that's the reality. They will rebuild, they'll be torn down, they'll be thrown down. And this is not something that he's going to do once or twice. This is going to be something that he does forever. God is angry forever against him. His indignation will be forever. And this is a picture of what God does to your enemies, to Satan, sin, and death. And that's a tremendous comfort for us. Because we know that even though Satan and sin has been defeated, that they're still powerful enemies. They roam, Satan roams around like a hungry, prowling lion looking for someone to devour. And at times, it does seem like Satan is regaining his power. He's gaining more influence. He does at times rebuild himself. He does recover. There are in the times of history that this it's clear, let's be realistic, during World War II, there was so much violence and evil that people thought the end of the ages had come. We do have times when churches are persecuted severely. 
Even in this Western world, he is gaining more and more influence, for example, with transgender ideology. The church is under attack. And this might scare us, make us concerned, but that's exactly what God promised. He didn't say that they were completely destroyed. He said they may build, and they do build. Either may build, our enemies may build, but they'll never recover to the point to stop from Christ being victorious. God will throw him down again. God will tear him down again and again. However many times he rebuilds his army. And beloved, his time is short. God's anger will burn against him forever. And soon, Christ will come back with burning anger and he will throw him down. He will throw down the beast into the lake of fire. He will throw down the devil into the lake of fire. He will throw down death into the lake of fire. And our enemies will be torn down for good and God will be angry with them forever. And that's the promise of love that he's making. And that's beautiful. That's wonderful. When Christ makes his enemies his footstool, it'll be truly wonderful. Imagine that. We will never have to struggle against sin. We will never have to grieve over death, the death of a loved one. We will never have to fear death for ourselves or someone else. It will be a wonderful day. And this will be evident to all. Your own eyes shall see. And you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. Dear brothers and sisters, trust this promises, these promises so that you may know and experience God's love. Amen. Let's bow our heads and unite our hearts with a prayer of response. Our gracious God and Father in heaven, we thank you for your love. Father, you have revealed your love in an unexpected way, in a way that is in a way that we're not used to. But nevertheless, we see how you love us and we thank you that you have defeated our enemies. We thank you that you have freed us from the slavery of Satan and sin. And we thank you that you you have promised to continue to tear him down and throw him down. Father, we thank you that the gates of hell will never prevail against the church. And Father, we look forward to that day and we pray that your kingdom will be fully established on this earth. And we pray that you would send your son, Jesus Christ, 